0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and occasionally we like to tell our listeners about podcasts we really like, and a podcast we really like is called The Endless Knot. It's hosted by Evan McMaster and Mark Sunderham. Mark is a medievalist and... Avin is a classicist, and on their podcast, they talk about all manner of things, medieval and classical, and occasionally other intellectual topics, which I think you'll find very interesting, and they're really entertaining hosts, let me say that. You can find The Endless Knot on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and other places where you find podcasts, or you can just go directly to their website, which is alliterative.net. That's A-L-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E dot net, and you can download episodes there. The episode you're about to listen to is from The Endless Knot, and I hope you find it entertaining. Thanks very much. Welcome to The Endless Knot Podcast.
1: Where the more we know,
0: the more we want to find out.
1: Tracing serendipitous connections through our lives,
2: and across disciplines.
1: Hi, I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. And today we're talking about Bob Dylan. For today's episode, we have a really fascinating interview with an academic who has found a way to connect his knowledge of classics with his love of classic
2: folk rock. Richard Thomas is the George Martin Lane Professor of the Classics at Harvard University, where he studies and teaches Latin poetry and classical reception. For a while now, he's been teaching a freshman seminar on Bob Dylan, and after Dylan was awarded the 2016 Nobel Prize for Literature, he set about writing a book to demonstrate some of the reasons that honour was deserved.
1: Why Bob Dylan Matters is the result, and it explores the classical allusions in some of Dylan's more recent albums and draws out the similarities between his approach to poetry and the work of Catullus, Virgil, and Ovid. This book is a fascinating read for a Dylan fan, but it's also an engaging introduction to his work for people who may be more familiar with ancient literature than modern folk rock, with careful readings of Dylan's lyrics, explorations of his writing process, and a passionate defense of the relevance, subtlety, emotional power, and lasting significance of the songwriter's
2: work. The book, published by HarperCollins, has just gone on sale on November 21st and is available everywhere. Professor Thomas will be doing some readings in early December. December 4th, he will be in Boston at Newtonville Books at 7pm. On December 6th, he'll be in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the Oklahoma Center for the Humanities, also at 7pm. Details about these events are in the show notes if you'd like to hear more.
1: Now, we were so excited to talk to Richard Thomas that we kind of forgot about introductions and just plunged right into our discussion. So please forgive the abrupt opening, and we hope you enjoy our discussion as much as we did.
2: One of the things that that really interests me about this book is it it really hits on one of my interests, which is sort of bridging the ancient and the modern, both through influence and through parallels. Is this something that you've always been interested in, or is Dylan a special case for you?
3: you no, know, I've the last twenty years or so, I've been interested in what what we call the reception of of the classical world, and in other words, the the stream as I. As I call it, that goes from Homer on down to Seamus Heaney and Dylan and beyond. So, um, classicists used to just sort of stick to their, stick to the ancient world and see going outside of that as something that was, um, transgressive of the discipline and so Mm -hmm. on. But that's all, all changed and I've sort of changed with it. I always, uh, in school, uh, loved, um, English literature and poetry in particular. And so, um, so always had that sort of in my in my mind and Dylan sort of became a part of that many many years ago yeah so it's um it's you know he's not and I think what I I think what the book does and what I hope it does is show that Dylan is part of a a a long um process that that you know Mm -hmm. that, that the human mind has produced in in literature I mean he's he's simply part of it and uh his genius is um is is not unlike the genius of the poets that he's been going back to in in my area in the last 20 years Homer, Mm -hmm. Virgil, Harvard and so on
1: yeah that it's not disconnected um it's part of a similar process
3: Mm -hmm. right
1: yeah the move towards um reception studies both as a separate study but also and I think I'm More pleased with this, the the integration of it into not just simply that there's classical reception, which is a type of scholarship that's separate, but that classicists who do both classical material and more generally reception studies that those can be integrated within one body of work is something that I think is a really positive move um, that the field has slowly gone towards, not seeing one as as more important than the other.
3: Right, and it was you know if you look at the 19th century poets like Coleridge and Wordsworth and mm-hmm. Tennyson, maybe particularly Tennyson and his relationship to poets like Virgil. I mean, they were, they were part of that part of that process. And it's it's really only in in some ways in the 20th century that that got disrupted and that, mm-hmm. that um you know, that there wasn't a continuity. So I think that's partly also why Dylan is going back to the 19th century and going back through the folk traditions of which he's a, uh, a master to people like uh, you know Robert Burns and and others. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. This is something that he's known about for a long time. He's been in a tradition. I think the more so-called high register poets, mm-hmm. um, i.e. the ones who survive because they get written down, um, that's that's really only since nineteen ninety seven or two thousand and one. But it's um, it's not it's not any um, different from Process that he's always been part of.
1: Mm-hmm. It's not a break with previous practice; it's an extension of
3: it. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're right. There's that that interesting break uh, with in in particularly the the first half of the 20th century, where the modern modernist poets kind of turned their backs on the the long literary tradition that uh, that went before them, um, with a few exceptions, of course, like T.S. Eliot.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. And, and and Pound, to some extent, but Pound,
3: of course, you know, despised some of the classics or, or claimed to, and was was mm-hmm. looking into other corners for his influences. And um, but yeah, no, exactly. I think it is uh, the moderns, and I think it's things like the First World War. And I mean, if mm-hmm. look at Wilfred Owen, you know, who is a classicist, Arms and the Boy is is a is a version of Arms and the Man, the but mm-hmm. uh, exposing what. You know, what epic poetry is about. It's about the glorification of the killing of young men like himself who died in the trenches. And I mean, had had, had he survived, he, I think we would have seen him as a as a modern who would have been doing interesting things with his tradition in the same way that, that uh, Eliot did.
1: Yeah, to a, some extent, that break was caused by the literal killing off of a generation of, a generation, of, yeah. of poets who were steeped in that tradition. But would have had a different take on it after the war. And yeah. we have a few examples of that, but too many of them were lost.
3: Elliot yeah. didn't, notoriously didn't sort of fight, but um, as... Mm-hmm.
1: The, one of the things that really struck me about, um, as you sort of talked about the the history in the last 10, 15 years of what you call Dylanology, I know you're not the only one who calls it that, um, is that many of the insights into sort of Dylan's use of... of written texts of more modern and classical texts that you describe come about pretty serendipitously, um, moments of really unexpected connections between a text that somebody happens to be reading and and the, the, I'm going to call them poems over and over again, the songs that they're listening to. Um, One of the things that struck me about that is that I think it demonstrates the value of not being too specialized in one's own Interests, scholarship, but also just interests. Not restricting yourself too much to, oh, I read Latin poetry, or oh, I like folk music or rock or whatever. Um, that it that these insights have come through people who have wide and maybe seemingly disparate interests.
3: Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's true. And the the, the very conscious engagement with the classical text there is this uh, curious instance. Back in uh, in the song changing of the guards in the late seventies, but um, Mm -hmm. where he seems to in a draft to have been reading Virgil's (laughs) fourth eclogue, the so-called messianic Mm -hmm. Mm eclogue, it really starts in two thousand and one. And when, as I as I write about in the book, when I when I heard the verses from Worn Day Blues that that take one right back to the sixth book of the Aeneid, it was because Mm -hmm. I had the Aeneid hardwired that. That I I heard that, and then the notorious example of the New Zealand um, uh, teacher, I think he's British, but Cliff Fell, who was um, who was preparing for a class and was reading Ovid, having in 2006 having hardwired Modern Times, and as he put it, suddenly the the page started singing to him. So, <laughs> and then the process since that, I mean, um, has been there's been sort of more. Googling than than having the songs activate the memory of of text that right. one had um, you know gotten control of in in other ways through writing about them or teaching so now I think yeah.
1: a more intentional process
3: now I think looking. so, yeah. yeah and but useful, you know, useful to have these work, particularly um Scott warmouth is the one who's sort of recovered the. All of these fragments, or many of them, um, also Robert Polito, who's a who's a humanist himself. Mm-hmm. But uh, what my book, I think, does is is show or suggest what Dylan is is actually doing by taking on these texts, so mm-hmm. I'm trying to interpret their presence in the songs.
1: Yeah, to some extent, it parallels the process of a sort of source scholarship in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, where first people find the connections and before the 19th century, but uh, in the classical poetry, I'm thinking of, you know, making the lists, the lists and lists and lists of illusions. And then the later 20th, second half of the 20th century, you know, developing a theory of intertextuality and developing uh, work on what's going on, on yeah, understanding no, them and explaining them rather than just finding them.
3: Right. That's a terrific Terrific uh, observation. And, and yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. my early work on intertextuality was sort of dubbed source criticism because that's what people, people were familiar with. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and so you would commentaries that said CF, Homer, Odyssey, put yes. 10 line, whatever, but didn't say why you should CF it. And so um, that's...
1: Yeah. What ele- what at all that added to one's understanding of the text to know that it came from Homer. Right. That there was a reference to Homer. Yeah and and I was thinking about that process.
2: Yeah, the I mean how one goes about you know doing this kind of work with specifically with a modern writer like Dylan where there isn't that whole body of scholarship to already existing to su- sort of support that those that sort of work um, and someone you, with such a large text large it's not text, like Dylan is yeah. a small amount of uh, a small work, body of work to get handle on and you mention in in the book that the importance of serendipity—just you know, finding these things by accident—now intentionally looking for them uh, is uh, a, it seems to me a daunting uh, process. Yeah, it is. I mean, but of course, with search
3: engines now, you can you can sort of find stuff out there, and that's mm-hmm. and that's what's been happening. And I'm not sure. I think Dylan. I think he wasn't, the Dil, Dylan wasn't particularly pleased that all of this sort of Googling happened, particularly when it was then contextualized with, with a sort of, um, wrong theories about plagiarism and so on. You know, right. the, all poetry is, is plagiarism. Nothing is really original. It's how you reshape through your mind and your technical skill, um, what's part of your tradition. And, and Dylan is, is like Noah, you know, just like any other
0: poet mm-hmm. in that.
3: Sense, but you know when the when they Wall you know the Wall Street Journal gets hold of a of, of a an observation about plagiarism, that's simply how it will present it. And um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, but I think that's changing. I think there's a sense now, and I mean not just with the Nobel, but I think there's a sense um, out there that it's now you know not not just among um, specialists, but there's a, a general sense that what Dylan has done, you know in reshaping uh, works in his tradition is, is something that is part of his genius. And it's mm-hmm. different from what he did early on, but not radically different. What he was doing with Rambo in Mr. Tambourine Man or, or Chimes of Freedom, I think, is was, was similar. But then, you know, his art was also slightly different. He himself has said he didn't know where those songs came from and, and they... Mm-hmm. That sort of came tumbling out in that <laughs> the process is more cerebral maybe in recent years, but that still, you know, to do what he does with his now visible tradition is something that nobody else could do other than. Mm-hmm.
1: I think maybe, maybe we can, we need to find some way, it's in parallel to the notorious Alexandrian footnote, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the way of that, that, um, Classical authors, I know you know this, but the way that classical authors were sometimes said to mark their sources, or mark not where their source was, but that it was from a source, with the, it is said, or some people say, um, before a a line or a reference to a story or a myth that comes from a particular source, and it's sort of a, hey, I'm I'm about to do some source work, but it's up to you to figure out where it comes from.
3: (laughs) Exactly, yeah, so that Virgil, at the beginning of Aeneid 6, so Daedalus, as, as the story goes. Yes, who's, who's exactly. And, and the story is, in fact, in the poet Catullus. Mm-hmm. And Virgil wants us to to recognize that because recognizing that and invoking that Catullan context, um, one of loss, um, which is what Virgil's mm-hmm. also talking about, Daedalus' loss of Icarus is something that enriches and... Uh, uh, Dylan's sort of gone beyond this in a way. I mean, a song like Early Roman Kings, um, <laughs>
1: you
3: know, when we all heard the title, thought, oh, great, he's uh, going to talk about Romulus and Remus and, and the early Roman Kings. But it turned out then that they were, he was sort of frustrating that expectation and playing with that expectation by the fact that the Roman Kings are a Latino gang from the 1960s from New York. But then the second verse, um, Actually, has the early Roman kings distributing the corn? So those are the Roman kings, and then, mm-hmm. and then later he's got Homer, uh, he's got Odysseus taunting the the Cyclops. So, you know, he himself has said, you know, there's no meaning in my songs. You know, don't look for meaning. And I think, you know, of course, one never. He's Dylan is the ultimate unreliable uh,
2: <laughs> narrator I, of his own life. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that raises the interesting question. Um, and it, of course, it's hard to, to you know, guess the the intentions of a writer, but uh, to what extent Dylan wants us to to look for those references, even when he says not to.
1: Mm-hmm. When you were saying that about Virgil, I mean, that's the thing that the heavy intertextuality of Roman poets like Catullus or Virgil, I mean, we often say that it's, it's a challenge to the reader. It's a way of marking the sort of intellectual lineage of the poet. There's a lot of reasons that they use the not- not just that they use the occasional line, but that it's you know deeply, embeddedly, like the opening of Catullus 64 with its 17 layers of allusion to Callimachean and Hellenistic texts and back to the Medea of Euripides, things like that. Um, that one of the levels of that kind of poetry is a sort of uh, marking of the ideal reader or uh, an engaging in a com- commonality of here's, we have the same source material to draw on, you're going to recognize it. Do you think that's what Dylan is doing at all, or, or is there something else? No, I
3: think so. I mean, if you look at a song which doesn't have classical intertext on it, mm-hmm. uh, a song like Trying to Get to Heaven in, from um, Time Out of Mind, 1997, which is when the, the comeback really, the comeback and the use of texts and the rewriting of other poets really uh, becomes a fundamental part of his art – Mm-hmm. So that in the book, I have I have several pages of the the sort of gospel, folk and blues um, lines that are sort of basically sort of taken taken over, uh, rewritten, and mm-hmm. create the song of somebody who's who's in trouble. You know, um, we don't know what the trouble is, and that's part of the mystery of it. When I was in Missouri, they would not let me be. Who are they? And and you mm-hmm. know what did not letting him be, the singer be, uh, consist of. But you know, you've got House of the Rising Sun is in there, um, um John the Revelator, we're okay. doing that in his Nobel lecture, um, is one of the things that he absorbed. He talks in that lecture about absorbing the vernacular of the folk um world. And I think in many ways he's become all of these characters or his his um, his writing voice and his singing voice has become just a part of this tradition and I think that's exactly what Virgil's doing with his tradition mm-hmm. back to Homer
1: So do you think he, he wants, well I mean you've kind of answered that already that he was seemed a little annoyed that people were publicizing or talking about the specifics of um, some of those borrowings uh, do, you, do you think he wanted them to be, not the not the folk which I agree, there's a little bit of a different quality to that because that is part of a larger tradition that he expects his audience to have inside them as well, I think. But with the more literary references, do you think he's picking them up because he wants us to recognise their context and make those intertextual connections? Or is it more of a, those are lines that he likes, those resonances, and so he's going to write that song, but he doesn't necessarily feel expect everyone to catch them, something in between? Is it? Is it different for every
3: example? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, I think early on, say on Love and Theft with a the song like Lonesome Day Blues, which has the Virgil slightly mm-hmm. worked, but also has um, you know, the Japanese uh, confessions of a Yakuza and also right. has Hakun in the same song. I think, I think that that is part of his art, sort of rewriting and I think he has an ear and an eye in reading for what Will, what is poetic and mm-hmm. and what he can really work in his art, but um, so I think I don't think he cares on some level what um, mm-hmm. what we think or, or know. He cares only the, about the art and how and how well it works. Um, mm-hmm. Now that I think changed a bit. So after two thousand and six, when Arvid and Henry Timrod, the Confederate poet, were was spotted why did he six years later in 2012 um so noticeably and he knew he knew about the googlers at that point
1: <laughs> he knew you were looking for it yeah, yeah
3: knew people were looking for it and um um and is that then is it becoming a game a sort of a, a um a, a nodding and winking to the mm-hmm. to the audience and to the reader to the listener um Maybe partly, but the songs, you know, Tempest, the songs of Tempest are, in my view, among the very greatest songs that he's ever written. I mean, I just, um, Mm -hmm. so there may be some playfulness. But that playfulness is also part of um, the classical tradition. Virgil has acrostics, you know. He has about the gates of war and he has the word M-A-R-S starting four consecutive lines for Mars and (laughs) So that you know, at one of the most serious moments of his epic, he's he's also being playful, and that's that's what poets do, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And he doesn't sacrifice those. Those four lines are not the worst because he had to move or, move them around in order to create the acrostic. He's not right, creating right. A, a lesser piece of work because he wanted to throw in a joke. Yeah,
3: you know, he and, had and they to do both
1: because he's Virgil.
3: Right? If you or I did it, they would be worse. But Virgil yeah. if, <laughs> if and Dylan do it. It's um, you know that that's what art and and poetry and songwriting at that level are all about.
1: Yeah, in some ways, you could see it not so much as, I don't know, but one could imagine it being not so much a playful, now it's a game, but that knowing that people are looking for it frees him up in a way to use a little bit more with the expectation that as well as being good songs for those who know nothing about the intertexts, that he can now expect his audience to be able to find some of them. He's able to have now sort of a constructed ideal audience who is going to be on the lookout for odd things. So not a game necessarily, but another layer he can add to his work now. Now he can have that layer too and know that some people will be able to pull those intertextual resonances in and that for others who don't, it doesn't matter because the poems are still masterpieces. At songs. <laughs> songs are still masterpieces on their own.
3: Right, absolutely. And that that's the same you can read Homer or a Virgil, mm-hmm. just uh, without any any knowledge um, mm-hmm. of the traditions, um, because they're just such great expressions of of what it means to be human and to die. What empire is about in all of its problematic nature? What war is about? What homecoming is about? or The mm-hmm. ability for home to achieve homecoming.
1: Mm-hmm. The intertexts add, but they do, are not required. For the work right. to be good, yeah,
3: yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they, if you need them, then it becomes sort of frigid and and mm-hmm. um, sort of art purely for art's sake and and artificial. Essentially, mm-hmm. that's, that's what we we know about those traditions, right? The worst, the least accessible um, poetry of Hellenistic poetry. I won't name the names because <laughs> I have been too work on some of them, but ones that are impenetrable without having a, a lexicon
1: right like uh, the now lost uh, we can we can say this because it's lost so it's not a, a problem but the was it nepos or i can't remember who it is who did the the work that needed a commentary within its own generation
3: oh right uh, yeah
1: in the yeah. among the neoterics that yeah. as soon as it was published it needed a commentary because nobody could understand it
3: Exactly, and,
1: and we don't have it anymore and there's right. probably a reason for that <laughs>
3: Right, and euphoria, and, you know, yeah. it, it starts in the Hellenistic period, but yeah, that, yeah. that, absolutely. And it's, and it's Virgil who, who, you know, there are parts of Catullus, Catullus is a great poet, so even mm-hmm. when he's being elusive, um, and, you know, has these, these references that are not easily catchable, he's still writing poetry, but things could have developed in a, in an interior way. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: Virgil came along and, and, you know, Rested the
1: tradition around again. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Partly, I mean, Eliot's essay, What is a Classic, is a problematic essay, but I think it's right that, that Virgil, you can't define a classic without going through Virgil because, and that the maturity of language, so the sort of moment in history and the genius of a particular, particular poet. Um, and if you think about Dylan, you know, you are dealing with pretty much, uh, pretty much the same. Confluence of, mm-hmm. um, of circumstances, historical
1: moment, and maturity of tradition and individual talent. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. So, although they might not have the same cultural impact as Dylan, are there other songwriters who would whose work would repay such an intertextual reading, uh, especially with respect to the classical material? And uh, you mentioned in, in the in the book, you know, the two albums that you brought with you. Uh, to the U.S., um, the other one was Leonard Cohen. That might be an example.
3: Yeah,
1: he's
2: your guy, right?
3: Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: There's no uh, hometown bias here at all.
2: <laughs> right. Well,
3: I um, I first heard Leonard Cohen when I was um, when I was 16 years old. Um, I was at 17? Um, a, a friend of my older brother's brought over songs of Leonard Cohen and that mm-hmm. um yeah that's the album along with Blonde on Blonde that I brought with me to the States and the rest off to travel through Greece and Leonard Cohen of course is a poet first um yes and, because, yes. and Dylan yes. showed him in Dylan's writing of 64, 65, 66 Dylan showed him as he showed many others Springsteen later on that that poetry and music are compatible and so that. Mm-hmm. that part of the revolutionary nature so leonard cohen yeah i um i consider him number one as bob said bob is zero number zero and leonard is number one uh, <laughs> so I
1: think, that seems fair yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah I recognize that in leonard cohen and i'm not sure that i mean the class i don't think there's much in the way of classical deliberate classical allusions or intertexts in in color. and I think it's I really think it's something that Dylan almost sort of reinvented and I think it you know mm. I mean um Elliot the love song of of Alfred J. Proof proofrock is um is right there in in um Desolation Row. So yeah. I think Dylan is doing this from early on um in ways that other post sixties um Songwriters aren't doing so much. So, so, Joni Mitchell, I don't think so, so much. I think they're, I think in the case of Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, Neil Young, it's, that's not the process that's working there. It's, it's more, a, it's a freer process, maybe, perhaps. Um,
2: the other, the other songwriter I was thinking of is Sting. Yeah. Not so much with uh, classical references, but um a lot of English poetry references and biblical references that's in the post police post police stuff, stuff. though yeah. even even in in the police days, he did have a few, mm-hmm. you know he mentions Nabokov and mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah, yeah, he has a couple of references. I wouldn't say he was sort of working so much with the text no, not as not so much just no. the cultural touchstones yeah. that's that's more common, I mm-hmm. think. It, just you know, alluding to a name mm-hmm. or a person. Yeah.
2: But he does well, have lines from from Shakespeare in his his later his solo mm-hmm. work. Yeah. yeah, and I'm less familiar
3: with that, so I went. But uh, but that sounds interesting. And, and Leonard Cohen too with the with the Bible. I mean, obviously, Hallelujah mm-hmm. is, is yeah. a, his example, but there are other other instances too. I mean, um,
1: yeah. I I mean, I I know. Some of Cohen's works better than others, but I have never sat down with it and tried to do. I mean, one of the things that your book has made me now want to do is, and I I thank you for this because this is a good thing to want to do, is to listen to some of my favourite works with a different ear. Um, because I have tended to sort of think more within the musical tradition, to hear the the quotations and the intertexts within the musical, both like the, set, the actual melodies, but the... Um, you know, how Dylan picks up on Guthrie or something like that.
3: Right. Yeah.
1: But yeah. to listen to it for a wider and to think about, not just listen for that, but to think about what that means and what process is going on. um, hasn't been, have I been thinking about some of these songwriters and who knows, maybe there's something there.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I, I think that's a good, a good mission. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And it's, you know, I mean, dealing with, um, uh, Columbus Stockade, the Guthrie, it's not just Guthrie, but the song that he probably got from listening to Guthrie that then became this song that he never recorded, um, California Brown Eyed Girl about this girl who, Avril, who, um, was a dancer in New York that he was sort of living with in, uh, in the very
1: oh,
3: early period. Yeah, right. Yeah. But that song, Columbus Stockade, is a, you know, a guy in prison who's feeling betrayed by a woman who's, you know, leave me darling, I don't mind. And mm-hmm. Averill had headed off to California so that, so if you hear, you know, he didn't publish it, he sang it to her over the phone apparently. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, if you hear Columbus Stockade, um, it's it's meaning the imprisoned sort of lover who's been abandoned. Um, Dylan just from the very beginning had this ability to to create characters in his song who were uh, who connected to the art that was uh, that he was sort of hardwiring in in those years. Mm-hmm.
1: pivoting a little bit but i think in some ways this is the same uh, another parallel kind of question um you know i'm as i'm reading i'm i was thinking about the difference between working with ancient texts and working with dylan and one of them is that when we study ancient poets we we often have very little or no biographical information we very rarely have any access to multiple versions or to their writing process you know they they aren't in a vacuum. There's a historical context, but in terms of their personal um, creative context, you know, often we have worse than no information about their biography. Right. Um, when you're working on Dylan, about whom there's such a wealth of information, but as you already alluded to, kind of presents such a shifting and contradictory story of his own life and his own writing mm-hmm. process, you know, saying, oh, I wrote Blowing in the Wind in, in 10 Minutes. Um, and you rightly sort of point out in the book that maybe or maybe that was a little bit of an oversimplification. <laughs> yeah. How does it sort of compare when you're studying these poets about whom we really come down to having just the finished product and have to recreate the process compared to, to Dylan where we have information about the process, but we kind of can't trust it?
3: Right, and I think it really becomes the same thing. So that the lives, mm-hmm. the ancient lives, as you know, of Virgil and Horace and so on, are, are, people are very sceptical about many of the details. Some people mm-hmm. sceptical about all of them. I'm less so. I think there are truths. Um There, Virgil, how Virgil composed—you know—wrote a bunch of lines in the morning, then deleted, excised, sort of licked into shape. Is the term? Mm-hmm. That's where the term licked into shape comes from of a, a bear licking at sea mm-hmm. into shape. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so that's useful if it's true. Um, mm-hmm. um and but doesn't you know that we really don't know anything about Virgil doesn't matter because it it's it's the art of Virgil that mm-hmm. his life, his circumstances, his genius created that we that is the focus we care about. And um mm-hmm. I say it's the same thing about Dylan, what do we really know about Dylan? You know, his, his mother reportedly said, you know, people don't know Bob. He's a, he's a really kind, gentle man. Everybody should have a son like Bobby. One of the Nobel awarders said he seemed like a very kind man. So what does, um, you know, when Dylan on stage is singing Positively Fourth Street, you got a lot of nerve to say you are my friend. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I wish that for just one time you could stand inside my shoes and just for that one moment I could be you. Yes, I wish that for just one time you could stand inside my shoes, you'd know what a drag it is to see you. Does that sound <laughs> like a nice man, um, but that's a song. So in mm-hmm. a way, I think not... Having biographical information is is liberating. Not you know the his school record disappeared from the school fairly early on. So obviously he (laughs) he, with the help of somebody or other made it disappear. And you know one detail I I dug up about his belonging to the Latin Club and what they were doing on a specific day.
1: I did love that. I I really did. Whatever the value of it in the, you know, larger sense, necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does connect us very intimately, it feels like, to a yeah. sort of moment in his life, and that is pretty amazing.
3: Yeah, and we don't know much. You know, the people around him don't talk much. I mean, the people who are mm-hmm. closest to him say say next to nothing. You know, people like Sarah Dillon or um, Newworth, um, you know, who... With whom he shared stuff, but I think he probably didn't share um he's never shared the you know the inner Dylan, the artist, mm-hmm. uh, you know what he was thinking about when he wrote this with uh, anyone. I think he I think he saw from early on that 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 was uh dangerous in some odd way maybe, and that that, that as an artist he, he was he was going to only let so much out.
1: Sometimes we see, I think there's a pattern of some kinds of artists who feel very vulnerable when they reveal about themselves. And the only, the, the, the way that they can reveal about themselves is through their art, because that is a vulnerability they can control. And that unmediated sort of sharing is too vulnerable. Um, that's a bit pop psychoanalysis on my part. But, but I mean, I think we can kind of see that with people who write and produce and paint and all the, you know, very, what seemingly very vulnerable and raw and emotional, personal material, but who are very somehow private outside of their art.
3: Right. And so, you know, someone like uh, Bruce Springsteen, whom I love, mm-hmm. is, um, is sort of the opposite. He will, he will sort of mm-hmm. tell us about his politics and he'll chide the audience if they aren't understanding his, his position in yeah. the, um, Empty Sky and something like that.
1: Yeah, I wonder um, wonder what Dylan thinks of uh, the layers of Catullus 16, if he knows it. Though oh. I imagine that one wasn't taught in his class at the time. Um, yeah, probably not.
3: I'm not. I don't think <laughs> he did enough Latin to get to that in Latin. I do think his, his teacher, I think she She may have read the um Odi et Amo I Love and I Hate mm-hmm. You Ask Why That Is. I don't know, but I feel it happening and I'm being tortured. Um and
1: yeah, that makes it into uh, even introductory textbooks often, just as an right, example. Exactly.
3: Yeah, and that's also simple, simple, simple enough mm-hmm. to sort of present to a, a you know a beginning Latin group. And and there's mm-hmm. a letter that he re- writes to Suze Rotolo um, that seems almost to be alluding to that. You know, when she's mm-hmm. in Italy um, studying art, and and good for us that she did because it created songs like Boots of Spanish Leather and I Want yeah. You. So on, um, but I think that you know I think there may actually be a, a little bit of, of Catullus in there. But
1: mm-hmm. the reason I mention Catullus sixteen is uh, apart from the obscenities of the opening and the ending, which make it a favorite of mine to read in class. Okay. Um, <laughs> but apart from that, the the core message of it, which is Catullus saying, "You think you know me from my poems, and you you um, attack my masculinity for that, but the poem and the poet are not the same." don't think you know me just because you've read my poems yeah now you can deconstruct that again to say but wait a minute isn't this a poem in which you're telling me (laughs) that poet and poet are not the
2: same what
3: what should I believe I'll do this I'm teaching Catullus's term and I I yes all the poems and so we I I actually say what I'm not going to say on the air I will x you about it Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes and why are you for saying that I'm I'm like this because of, uh, um, because my poems are somewhat risque, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so, and, and Dylan, you know, the, the, um, Dylan's discovery of, uh, Rambo, for which various people take credit, uh, as well as <laughs> Rotolo, um, Dylan writes about this and chronicles a bit, but Dylan's discovery of I is another, mm-hmm. you know, is, is which the Roman poets, you, uh,
1: Certainly no, yeah.
3: Millennia yeah. ago and that poem that you rightly pick on "Catullus sixteen is is mm-hmm. precisely about that and that Dylan mm-hmm. had been practicing that art, but but that he saw in that statement that that Rambo the person is, is somebody other I mean that's this is now conventional sort of narratological theory. But
1: Yeah, but it it does take coming to um exactly. when you're either because you're young and haven't been exposed to it yet or because it hadn't yet been become sort of conventional wisdom it it, it does take coming to i think
3: yeah and when we hear a song we want to particularly when it's somebody like Dylan or Neil Young or Leonard Cohen we yeah. want the sentiment to be the sentiment of the of the historical Bob Dylan or the historical Robert Zimmerman, and I get mm-hmm. say if we're if we're trying to identify the sentiment of the song with the person of the singer rather than the persona of the of the singer, that's that's I think a, a human impulse that we want to know. We have a curiosity about the the artists that we love, and we want to you know, get close mm-hmm. to what they're actually thinking, rather than the thought that they're turning into art through various.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the central paradox of like the Romanologists, I think, um, that they play with and someone like Ovid plays with it, even more so, uh, that they know you want to know them through their poetry. And they're always playing with letting you in or not letting you in. And I don't know that Dylan is as focused on that, perhaps, that, you know, that's not as much the point of his songs, as it is, I think, the point of some of, say, Ovid Amores. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think it's still a tension there, that he knows, and you you refer to this when you talk about how he sort of seems to have a, a paradoxical relationship to performing, that he finds it really hard to be so visible, and yet is only happy on stage.
3: Yeah, uh, that's, that's a uh,
1: paraphrase of what, what he said,
3: but something like that. Right, whereas well, it's Leonard Cohen, you know, only went on stage, well not only, but mostly when he got ripped off and had to sort of mm-hmm. build up his... To pay the bills. That <laughs> yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, so someone like Arvid, exactly, the Amores. Um, so I was about to sing of epic, but Cupid came along and stole a foot away, so now I'm writing elegiac couplets, which um, you can't do epic in that meter, so I guess I'm, I'll have to write love poetry Um so here I am writing love poetry, but I don't have a girlfriend or boyfriend yet to write love poetry. So this <laughs> existential impossibility of being in love, but uh, but <laughs> but with <that> no object But <laughs> so, then he finds, and man. then the identity is an, a love poet. Yeah, <laughs> and I and I think the exile poems um, are similar, there, uh-huh. which, you know, which Dylan has so brilliantly integrated into. Into modern times, a number of poems.
1: Yes, which I think is kind of wonderful because I do think, uh, just from the perspective of the exile poems, are an understudied and underappreciated element of Ovid. I'm not and I haven't really worked on Ovid, and I they're underappreciated by me as well. But I do think that uh, I've done a little bit of work recently teaching them actually, and and have realized that I should have been paying more attention to them.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I taught a course in the evening school, extension school at Harvard a couple of years ago on them, on just the exile poems. And, uh, oh yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And of course, Dylan, Dylan read it in Peter Green's Penguin translation, uh, with mm-hmm. fantastic, translation. which is a very good one. Yeah. And, and again, sort of selecting lines, no one could ever say that I took up arms against you. You know, that's mm-hmm. to Augustus, the emperor who's exiled him, but Dylan, in Working Man Blues, number two, that line becomes the line to a, a lover who's no longer on the scene and but, you know, mm-hmm. becomes a line of regret and longing in in just a completely different way. But Dylan read it, read that line, precisely that line, mm-hmm. and saw its potential for his song. So that's um, no, exactly, mm-hmm. as, as you know as well as I do, that's exactly what someone like Virgil or Catullus is doing.
2: Mm-hmm. So... One of the, the sort of larger messages that I, I take from this work, and I think is it, it really lines up with uh, how I think about things, is that it's useful to sometimes step out of your uh, the, the confines of your field. Obviously, studying Latin poetry has affected your understanding of Dylan. But I wonder, uh, has it worked the other way for you? Has working on Dylan affected how you approach Latin poetry? Yeah, that's a great uh, a great
3: question. Um, uh, I think that the short answer is yes. I mean, I'm still processing the ways. So I've done you know the freshman seminar that I've done since 2004. I did partly because I started seeing what Dylan was doing since the since Love and Theft in 2001. I guess I I guess in a way I it's contributed to the sort of the dropping of boundaries um, chronological and and even even sort of generic boundaries that i see it's a, allowed me to see that somebody like virgil who we're told you know would walk into the a theater and people would get up and applaud or that the crowd <laughs> he had to duck into somebody's house when the crowd noticed him that you know that that virgil was you know a rock star <laughs> essentially of his day so that he virgil was pop um he was um pop who became a classic because of the Quality of this pop, whereas most of the pop music of the sixties is, um, a lot of it, too much of it is still embedded in my, in my head, but, um, <laughs> it, uh, it didn't last, whereas Dylan's did. So it's, yeah, it's helped me to mm-hmm. see, to try and reach a synchronic mm-hmm. understanding of, of what it would have been like to get up some morning in the year 37 or 35 BCE, and and read Virgil's Eclogues and realize that the world of Roman literature was utterly transformed, um, you know, never to be the same again. I mean, Virgil was taught; we're told was taught in his own lifetime. So, what poets are taught in their own lifetime? Bob Dylan, my mm-hmm. seminar, obviously, but um,
1: people who are writing within their own lifetime and while they're still producing. As well, right. I think, because sometimes you know, once the body of work is produced, the writer might discourteously hang around for a while, but people feel like they're they're gone. But he's still producing things that are still well studying. Yeah, studied. and
3: it's also there's another detail, you know, that helps me read the ancients through Dylan. I mean, that, that we're told that Virgil, nobody could read Virgil like Virgil. That the effect of Virgil reads. Uh, and, um, right. you know, you listen to my friend David Ferry, the poet who's just translated the, Aeneid, a wonderful uh, version of that, hearing him read it. He knows what he meant with the poetry uh, of it. So, and mm-hmm. Dylan is the same. I don't, there's not a single song, not one that I prefer, including Henrik's All Along the Watchtower, which I love. But Dylan then took on that arrangement and, and never sang the pre-Henrik's version. But I'd even include that in saying that, you know, it's the person of Dylan, the appearance, the voice, the look, the mystique, the, you know, the the image that you've created of him in your head that, that is part of the performance and the, the lyrics. So, you know, that, as in many other ways, a poet like Virgil, the supreme poet of his day, and a songwriter like Dylan, poet like Dylan, I'm comfortable calling him that, um, mm-hmm. are really the same. So that, um, and when Dylan is gone, you know we'll have. That's why, the archive mm-hmm. at Tulsa is so important, and the and the careful preservation of the record of Bob Dylan that will allow. You know whatever future he has. I mean, I think he'll be around in two hundred years. I'm not sure in what ways he'll be around two hundred years, mm-hmm. but um, he'll be away at least around in the way that that Wordsworth and Blake and Coleridge are, are around, who are, are read still by the young, mm-hmm. not just by English professors, right? Yeah, I think so. I,
1: I, one predicting the future and and mm-hmm. and the future of aesthetic taste is a bit difficult, but I think it. it he has his He's certainly as likely to be around as anybody producing in the 20th century, let's put it yeah, that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Assuming there is any memory of the 20th century on the world, we haven't all been wiped off of it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, the monument more lasting than bronze. Exactly. I think yeah. he like participates
3: Horace. in. It's funny that Dylan hasn't um, engaged Horace tomorrow. With Horace. But, um, mm. I think he. Maybe the next album, I'm hoping there will be a, there will be another one, but that would be fun. Yeah.
1: There'll be a, a, a carpe diem moment or two, at least. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe that's too obvious. Maybe it'll have to be something a little yeah. less, uh, less obvious. There was one point that I just wanted to bring up because I kept seeing you, you focus, understandably, more on um, Virgil and Ovid because those are the clear, actual, intertextual uh, allusions that he has in uh, the more recent poems songs whatever but one thing because Catullus is for me my favorite as well you mentioned that you like him I am very fond of Catullus uh, is not only um, Catullus 16 in that poetic persona issue but um, I was struck by when you talked about Catullus 11 the goodbye poem to Lesbia that's quite famous and um, and you you tied it to a couple of his songs more in mood than in specific allusions or or sort of in the way he can manipulate and and evoke feelings of sadness and and goodbyes and things. But the other thing that I, that struck me is the way that I think there's a commonality between the two poets in terms of how they can mix sort of beauty and tenderness along with brutally cutting insults and and also humor. I mean, Catullus 11 to me is so much that. There's there's that lovely, lovely sapphic simile, and at the same time, you know, a really quite vile message to Lesbia. And the song um, Don't Think Twice is the one that comes to mind for me. I was raised on 60s Dylan, so yeah. that's what's most in my head. But that sweetness, there's some lovely, bittersweet lyrics in that song, but you just kind of wasted my precious time has always been the line to me that is just the most brutal rejection you can make to someone. And being able to mix those two things, I think that's something that I see as a, I'm not saying it's influence necessarily, but a, a commonality between the two of them. And I don't know if that comes out of actually having read some of these poems or if it's just uh, uh, something that they both came to.
3: Right. Yeah. There is a classicist to um, following on some of my work in the in the early 2000s, um, that that Dylan had been reading Catullus and sort of lined up some mm-hmm. of the, the poems that you talk about and, and and I don't think that's the case. I think um, I don't think Dylan was was doing what he did. I don't right. think Dylan was doing in the sixties with classical texts. I think it was an accident of two youthful geniuses. So Catullus was in his twenties and uh, mm-hmm. didn't get much past his twenties ever. Um And, you know, I think did have an affair which didn't work out well, but his art is what, is what sort of kicked in with whatever Mm -hmm. situation. And yeah, and I think that the ability, yeah, Catullus 11 is a a good instance and ending with, you know, let her, yeah, let her make love with her 300 adulterers, um, um, and not look Mm -hmm. back for my love, which, and then even in the sapphic simile, For my love, which through her fault has not been like the flower on the edge of the meadow, has been not crushed by the plough, but has been nicked, touched by the Mm plough. So the the Mm -hmm. flower is still alive, but it's dying. And so Catullus still has feelings, but they're dying and they will die. So even at that, with that sort of brutal moment. Now, is that true? And you just kind of wasted my precious time? Yeah, which is one of the you know one of the toughest lines. But don't think twice; mm-hmm. it's all right. But in is it really all right? Yeah. Dylan is he all right with it? <laughs> and so I think it's the same. Why would you do a song like that if it was really all right? Um, yes. And then he'll keep doing that. I mean, idiot wind. You know, playing idiot wind mm-hmm. in uh, a Rolling Thunder review when his wife, Sarah, the divorce is going to go through the next year, um, you know, she's in the audience and, and, but then, you know, there are versions, we're idiots, babe. It's a wonder that we still know how to breathe. You know, So it's, uh, right. there's always, mm-hmm. yeah, there's not, I think, I can't think of a song where there's finality, because if there's finality, um, why write a song about it?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There has to be some sort of tension or, or, Progress to be made, or a question that's left
3: open. Yeah, some residue of of something that that mattered. So was the time completely wasted? Um, yeah. So is that again, a moment, the the momentary anger of the singer who's you know, trying to convince himself that he wasted his precious time. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. We're getting a little little critty here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know, I can, I find it very hard not to. <laughs> it's, uh, but I think that's. I mean, I think that's the value. Of, I I don't know if I've mentioned that I very much enjoyed your book. I enjoyed your writing and and your engagement, which was, um, it's. I, I I enjoyed the balance of sort of the little, literary criticism and the personal and the mm. uh, and the contextualizing of setting it within you know the various periods both of Dylan's life and the historical moments yeah. um,
3: Thank you. how did your dad like it
1: <laughs> he, he liked it he it is funny i think he has um a slightly more paradoxical uh approach to dylan like my my parents love dylan's music and have always loved it and have sung it all their lives but he's a little less enchanted with dylan the man
3: perhaps <laughs> right yeah so he's 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 a he's a Joni person,
1: uh, perhaps a little bit more of one, yeah, and of some of the. Of, but but he really enjoyed the the he he fit, put it down and he said now I just need to go listen to more music.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think I hope what it will do is bring people help bring people to the later music. You know, I mean, there are a lot of yes. people out there who think either think well until the Nobel may have even thought that Bob Dylan wasn't with us anymore, but. <laughs> I didn't realize he was doing a hundred shows a year and and producing mm-hmm. these these um these colossally brilliant albums mm-hmm. in the last of uh, the last 20 years.
1: Well I think it did that for both me and my dad. Um because I certainly I just went out and bought the last three on iTunes oh, okay. and before, you know, over the last week. Because I didn't know them well. I had heard some of them. Um Thunder,
3: uh Thunder
1: Thunder, is it? Uh, that one and um, decane. Yeah. I can't remember titles. Oh, that's, that's, Why doesn't he just number them all like?
3: That? <laughs> I can do that. Those are both the opening songs of times um, yeah. and Tempest. too. So,
1: um, yeah, and I think they wear out perhaps as singles a little bit more too, yeah. so that I heard them. I'd heard them and a few others, but I didn't know all of them. And um, my, I think my dad's interested in, in picking those up too, and so I also appreciate that because I do like being reminded of what's out there, Yeah. <laughs> reasons to listen to things. Maybe to wrap up then, um, I'll ask you the question one should never ask a scholar. Um, so what is the next book? <laughs> <laughs> or has, you know, you wrote this book, um, obviously, in part in reaction to the Nobel win, or as a consequence of that moment. Has it made you think about continuing working on Dylan? Have you... Any interest in continuing this process with someone else?
3: Yeah, so um, I thought when I did it that I would get back to working on Tacitus, uh, who's a new mm-hmm. found research interest of, of mine, the greatest Roman historian um, and someone mm-hmm. Dylan mentions and has been reading, I think, and engaging. That's not why I got into Tacitus. <laughs> but um, but then in the process of writing the book, I, I've gotten two or three ideas of other dylan projects so i i always tell my students to work on something that is firing you up don't work don't do a dissertation on something that isn't sort of coming from from deep down in your mm-hmm. in your. and so to apply that i i yeah i think i'm going to uh, i'll keep i'll only teach the dylan seminar every four years so the next time will be 2020 and long may he run and maybe well another album but i <laughs> keep giving you no more material uh, yeah but i want to also dig around in the archives um in tulsa which have just been open to scholars fairly recently and uh, there are a couple of periods that i'm particularly interested in so i want to look at that and and um from a textual point of view partly but um and not just looking to see if i can find more classics but um Looking at the process of writing and rewriting that, um, a bit mm. in the book. I have a bit on the early versions of Tangled Up and Blue that nobody is yes. in the archive. So I'm, yeah, I want to do that, but I also have a, a couple of projects that would involve just me reading and thinking and listening, um, to mm-hmm. that are out there that, um, that I think I will do. So I'm often, I'm on leave in the spring. So I plan to get out to Tulsa a couple of times. And, uh, and yeah, so I think uh, Tacitus will be there um, when I come back to him. But, uh, and, yeah, and my teaching is is all you know, going to be the usual, but, uh, uh, you know, which doesn't exclude Dylan. Dylan. Dylan comes into almost every class I teach. So.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, that's one of the values. We were talking about that before we started um, recording, that I think that's one of the values of doing this kind of work is it does give you a connection to students and to people who, and to non-students. It allows, it allows people to come to the classical texts who might feel they are otherwise off limits or uninteresting or not for them. Because if Dylan is coming to them, why can't they? And if you can, if they're interested in Dylan and read your book, you've done that work of Bridging that gap for them, yeah, and showing them that they can read Catullus too. There's no reason they can't. Right,
3: it's right there beside their Dylan Tight connection to my heart, as Bob says. But yeah, no, absolutely, and I hope that that's what this book will do. I hope it will will be, uh, you know, my literature is does okay, but there are. I had a, I have a student who was in the in the Dylan seminar last year. He's now a sophomore, and he's doing Catullus, so he had good latin three of the students had good latin Mm -hmm. and he um he was talking about achilles to a fellow student a harvard undergraduate who didn't know who achilles was and Mm -hmm. he talked about the trojan war and that student didn't really know what the trojan war was either and so you know in 1974 when when nixon was um was nabbed there's a photo of him and haldeman and rosemary woods on the cover of newsweek magazine with the Watergate tapes entangling them, which was an allusion to the Laocoon statue group from the mm-hmm. where the serpents are sent to to kill Laocoon, who warned against bringing the, ho- the Trojan horse into Troy. So that image could be on Newsweek um, only 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago, but it could never be on Newsweek right now, I think, because of... Um,
1: no one would be able to make that connection, yeah.
3: And it's true that... Canons are problematic, but canons have existed for centuries because there's something about works like the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and others that, um, that are timeless. And if, if mm-hmm. uh, get lost, you know, as they're in the process of, of being lost at some level, then humans and not just the humanities, but humans, um, suffer from that. So yeah, I'm hoping that, and I think Dylan realizes that. I think Dylan is, just as he's bringing the American standards back to life um, in performance mm-hmm. and in the last um, three albums, I think he's, that's what he's doing with the classics as well, um, sending us back there and preserving them.
1: And opening them up. And, and yeah, saying, exactly. And sure. One of the reasons canons can be problematic is when they're exclusionary. And so to say these classical texts are not only for a little elite and they are open to you, is part of what makes those canonical texts important again. Yes. To say that they aren't a marker of elite, um, the past, they are something that is meaningful to everyone.
3: Yeah. And they were all pop in the sense of being popular Mm -hmm. with, uh, with the people. I mean, the Mm -hmm. Athenians sort of heard Homer constantly Mm in the context of festivals and other contexts. So, um, and that's why I mean, what it's interesting that we're in an age of translation, probably um six or seven translation poetic translations of the Aeneid since two thousand. and yeah, and now the first woman translator of the Odyssey mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm-hmm. Emily
3: Wilson, a fantastic translation. I'll put in a plug for that. but um
1: yes, uh, we're waiting on that book arriving ourselves because I am very much looking forward to reading that yeah,
3: and, um, very much. Mm-hmm. And you know, fagel's. Odyssey is the one that Dylan read. Mm-hmm. Added, I think Dylan says he read the Odyssey way back, and I think he did. I mean, it's I think it's pretty big in American high school curricula. But mm-hmm. so uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's stuff is alive, and, uh, and we just have to you know, get the message out somehow. And it's, <laughs> it, when we have people urging us to all do send all of our students to STEM classes and and.
1: Uh, mm-hmm.
3: You wonder where, you nowhere know, that all ends. But I think there's been some crack in that in the notion that that is a, a universal um, panacea that you can do that yes. without living an examined life, which involves, should involve thinking about literature, listening to literature, and so mm-hmm. on.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a pretty good note to end on. Really, <laughs> the examined life.
3: <laughs> well, it's great to chat, and um, thank you.
1: Yes, and thank you very much for the book and for this conversation. Yes. It was really stimulating. It was. Okay,
3: well, I much enjoyed it, and it's great to talk to another classicist about Bob Dylan.
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for more information on this podcast, check out our website, net, where you can find links to the videos, blog posts, sources, and credits, and all our contact info.
2: And please check out our Patreon, where you can pledge to support this show and our video project. You can go directly to the videos at youtube.com slash alliterative.
1: Our email is on the website, but the easiest way to get in touch with us is Twitter. I'm at Avensarah, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H.
2: And I'm at alliterative. To keep up with the podcast, subscribe on your favourite podcast app or to the feed on the website.
1: And if you've enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us a lot. We'll be back soon with more musings about the connections around us. Thanks for listening.
2: Bye.